For almost two decades, Kevin Smith's been making movies. Now he wants to watch movies with you. On June 4th, Hulu proudly presents Spoilers, where movie lovers like yourself emerge from watching this summer's biggest blockbusters and give your two cents. Think Prometheus will smell like rotten eggs? Can the Dark Knight piss in the Avengers' Wheaties? There'll be special guests, Q&A, and a fuckload of movie love. Spoilers, a new Hulu original series coming June 4th. Yo, Chicago. Kevin Smith wants to break wind in your windy city at the Chicago Theater on June 14th. Listen, learn, and laugh as the king of the Q&A busts your gut while he busts a nut with stories of writing, directing, producing, podcasting, pooping, and more. Don't miss An Evening with Kevin Smith at the Chicago Theater on June 14th. Tickets for this and all Smodco shows at csmod.com. This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Thank you. 
That was Tin Pan Band. Uh, the reason I played them today is because I was on Twitter earlier and I saw that they had tweeted, we're playing in Central Park right now. And it was about a year and two months ago when I was happened to be walking down the big promenade in Central Park by myself and heard this amazing Dixieland, New Orleans jazz kind of band. And, uh, and there they were. There was like six guys playing horns and all sorts of things. And I stood there and was thoroughly entertained and said to them, hi, can I have a CD? I want to play you on my show. So it was like this full circle kind of thing happened. And I thought, wow, man, I've got to play them today. So that's Tin Pan Band. Check them out. They're amazing guys. They're they're just so freaking talented. You know, there are gazillions of talented people in this world. And only three get to be paid gazillions of dollars for it. And I'm not one of them. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. It's my second show in like the longest time and ever and ever and ever it's nice to be here. And uh, it's June. It is June. I know. Was it June last week? No, it wasn't June last week. I'm so excited. This is our first and only June show because I'm going away, not permanently and not into a strange building with bricks and a sign on it or anything like that. I'm going, I've got a lot going on here, people. This is all I can say is I'm going to Santa Barbara for this weekend. I'm going to my graduate school. I'm having a leadership conference. I'm very excited. What? Kelly is going to a leadership conference. What kind of dorky thing is that? Yeah, I don't know. I'm obsessed. It's, you know, I went did the whole coaching thing and into leadership, and I'm fascinated by how we're going to lead our way out of this quagmire called the early 20th century and all that crap. And uh, I don't know. I'm fascinated by, you know, taking this world to the next level. And so leadership conferences, and it happens to be at my grad school, which is all about, as you know, Jungian depth psychology and Joseph Campbell mythology. So my two worlds are colliding and making love and I'm very excited. So I'm going to go up there for the weekend. And then next week, I'm going to Chicago. I'm going to Chicago. I have not been to Chicago since I was three years old and went trick or treating. Um, my dad was playing somewhere. It must've been like 1966. And I have this memory of this famous old comic named Uncle Dirty. Some of you comedy nerds out there will know who I'm talking about. He was playing a little horn. I actually have a picture of that too. That's my last memory of Chicago. I have not been there as an adult. I'm very excited to go. Next week, my husband and I are flying in and we're going to do my show next Friday night, June 15th at Up Comedy club, which I guess is the Second City Club, so I'm feeling very honored to be on their stage. It's part of the Just for Laughs Festival, and um, it's my birthday. So if you want to make my birthday happy next Friday, come out and see me, and I will make you laugh and cry. I promise. <clears throat> it seems to work that way. Even, 
even when I feel like I'm not doing it well up there, I make people laugh and cry. And I'm not saying that I'm so brilliant or something. I'm just saying there's chock full of shit in this show. There's plenty of story in this show that I could be half asleep telling this story and you'd still be happy. Um, so I'm going to Chicago, but then really, really, I've completely buried the lead on this one because on June 19th, I'm going to Scotland for 11 days and I'm giving up you people. I'm giving up social media. I'm giving up barely any emails. I mean, I will check emails just to make sure like the dogs are okay and the house isn't burning down and America still standing, I suppose. But um, other than that, fuck you all. Fuck America. Fuck you all. I'm going to the UK and I'm going to eat haggis and my husband's wearing a kilt and... uh we're going to stay at a very fancy place. My friend owns a very fancy place. So I'm going to be a very elitist for about 10 days and have a private chef feed me. And I'm going to enjoy every single forkful. So fuck you people. <laughs> I'm in a fuck you people kind of mood because this weekend, you know what I did? I got rid of like my Facebook page, my per my personal page with the 4,000 people on it, that the 3,600 of which I did not know at all. I have to say I was just tired tired, tired of invites and tagging and messaging from people. I love you all. You're great human beings. As my dad said, you look in the eyes of another person and you see the universe. But when you make a group out of them, they're a large pain in the ass. And some of you were just large pains in the ass. And it wasn't even individuals. It was just the whole mass of you. I would go to the homepage and see the wall feed and it would just be like, who are these people and whose birthdays are these? And I don't really care and I'm overwhelmed and I would get like this choking feeling in my throat and you know and think that it's not good for me so I converted here's the ironic joke on me though I converted my personal page to a like page and I was going to merge my two like pages because I already have a like page so I converted this page I did everything Facebook told me and I followed all the steps and I downloaded and archived my data and, blah, 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 and I saved photos that I wanted and blah 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 notes and all that stuff and they're like, you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose everything, but we are going to transfer all your friends into likes and then you'll be able to da, 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 da. So I transfer the whole thing over and it happens and it's now it says 4,400 likes or whatever and everything. But my page virtually doesn't exist. I can go to it. I can type it directly to it. But if I go to Facebook and search for my new like page, it's nowhere. It's nowhere to be found. I can't even log into it. I can't do anything. I send a note to Facebook saying, please, um, can we undo this so we can do it right or whatever? I've heard nothing. So all of that worry about making sure I kept my 3000 plus people on my like page so I could promote myself in the future. Uh, yeah guess what, Kelly, fuck you. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I was so worried about that. And after today, and it, it not working and everything, I'm like, you know what? It's gonna be okay. The world still is spinning and the sun came up and the dogs still need to be fed and I still need to lose eight pounds. So life is no different than it was actually. And I, and those of you out there, my loyal listeners, if you um, were quote unquote, a friend of mine on Facebook and are no longer a friend of mine, I apologize. But if I don't know you personally, or have done actual business with you, you are going to not be my friend on Facebook. <laughs> Come find me on my like page though. I do everything the same like page, personal page, like it's all the same. It's all the same. It's very, very intense. All right. Um, enough about me and that and all that crap. So anyway, welcome to June. It's lovely June. If you can listen carefully, 
Oh, that was the house cracking. There are birds outside. There's a little nest just outside our studio here. We've got the doors open today because it's gorgeous. And there's a little nest right above the lamp, and there's five babies in it. And they're barely fitting in the nest. We think this is some survival of the fittest test that the mother's doing. She's made the nest too small for them, basically. Um, and we're very worried that they're going to end up somewhere bad. So we're keeping a watch. But every once in a while, you hear a little chirping going on. That's the mommy checking them out and the little babies. So it's just like spring here. It's very much like a Disney movie here in the studio today. And um, we've got a little special treat for you today. Logan Heftel, our fabulous, fabulous music supervisor, engineer, extraordinaire musician at all, uh, went, came when we did our thing three weeks ago, the birthday for my dad down at the Comedy Magic Club. Um, and Logan recorded some of the comedy and he's edited together some snippets for us. And so I'm going to play this beautiful little thing. I haven't heard it yet. You're going to enjoy it. I'm going to get to hear it again. And the uh, comics that are included, these snippets are uh, Gary Shandling, Dana Gould, Daryl Wright, and Mr. Paul Reiser. So everyone um, enjoy this little comedy interlude. You know what, I should take and do what I saw George Carlin do that I never forgot. He walked out and he said, I need 30 seconds to make this fresh for myself. And so in honor of Mr. Carlin, let me take 30 seconds and try and change this up here. Well, not Mr. Carlin, it's going to take me, it could take me up to four minutes. Fresh for you. I had you plan. Had you plan on going home tonight? <laughs> okay. What's with the stop signs on pier? There about five thousand stop signs. That's where they should have the Long Beach Grand Tree. Just bring them down and put the stop signs in and just watch them rack up cars. Fuck them up because they gotta stop. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. Well, uh, this is a special night because it's actually my 75th birthday. <laughs> I'm actually a little nervous tonight because I'm such a fan of George Carlin's and now I'm on the show and I'm afraid I'm not gonna do well. And so I have and so then my fear is that I will die. And I'll be in heaven, and I'll see him, and he'll be like, hey, thanks for sucking on my show. And I'll be like, hey, you did five routines about how this place wasn't even real, so fuck you. I started comedy in Texas, and what happened is, I had a show for the clan, and what happened was, I was on a website with some, let's just say, redneck comics. <laughs> and they have my name and not my picture and my name is Daryl Wright, not Leroy Jackson. So you can understand how the clan got confused. So they hired me for they thought I was white. Since the check cleared, I did the show. Now it's a place in Texas called Vider, Texas. It's always somebody that knows where Vider is, yeah. I did a show in Vider, sir. Vider, Texas. It's the home of the clan in Texas. And I got there early, because most of us comics, most of us were here early, because we got to be, it's professional. So I get there, and I knock on the door of the bar that I'm doing the show at, 
And the guy that hired me is like, who the fuck are you? I'm like, I'm Daryl Wright. I'm the comic. And he's like, oh, shit. <laughs> so he offered to pay me to leave. <laughs> he was like, I don't got insurance for this shit, so you gotta get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and as y'all know, it's some Mexicans and blacks here, maybe. <laughs> well, even y'all white folks now, gas is expensive. So I just spent my gas money. I'm doing this motherfucking show. Now, I do the show and the clan love me. I'm big in the clan. They love me. After the show, we hung out, we had drinks. I learned nigga jokes I did not even know. <laughs> they gave me a Confederate flag t-shirt. It's all black with a flag on it. And they all signed it, like, God bless you, you're a funny-ass nigga, hope the career little. And I wear it all the time, because I earned it. Fuck y'all, now. This is funny. I met George when I first moved out here. And me and him went to Venice Beach, and we were talking. And we were going down Venice Beach together. George is George, and I'm me, but I got my Confederate flag shirt on. So needless to say, we got a lot of stares from people. So the first, so the first pers person that had enough nuts to say something to me was this coffee shop ass nigga that skateboarded up to me. <laughs> really, her Hermosa Beach, y'all know what a coffee shop nigga is. It's one of those black guys with dreadlocks, does poetry, <laughs> calls himself knowledge or wisdom or some bullshit like that. And he's like, bruh, do you know what that shirt means? I'm like, yeah, it means they lost, motherfucker. <laughs> Since the black power shit didn't work on me, he turns to George. He's like, hey, old white man. <laughs> yeah, ignorant. What do you think about that shirt? And George is like, now, y'all know George is living in New York City in fucking some badass neighborhoods, so all of his white guilt is gone. Because he lived around niggas in the wild like it's National Geographic. <laughs> so he turned to George, he's like, hey, white boy, what do you think about this shirt? And he's like, look, man, I just bought this nigga on eBay. <laughs> share this story. I So I was like crazy. I, I, I loved George Conn. I, I watched every time he was on, on anything on TV and he was on a lot. And actually for, there was a year that my speech, I actually had, I screwed up my own speech because I was doing him and I was doing his uh, his Irish cop. Yeah, we got the paper traders on the thing. Yeah, you got this. And I was talking like that. My parents go, but why are you doing that? I go, I'm not doing anything. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm talking fine. <laughs> you're young and Jewish. No, you shouldn't talk like that. <laughs> Was doing George that much. So, but the thrill, and this is one of my thrills of my childhood, is George Collin came to my house. This is a true story in, in a crazy, stupid way. Um, and so, this was set 1972, and he played the Palace Theater in New York. And I think he did like a week or a big solo thing. My older sister was in college, and somehow she had gotten to George, or and he agreed to do an interview for her, her school paper. 
So we went to the show together. Of course, he couldn't do it after the show. He said, why don't we try and connect tomorrow? So it was a Sunday morning. So Sunday morning, he called, she, he's, and they were going to go meet somewhere. He said, you know what? He goes, my, my wife, is, she's not feeling well. We can't do what? I could come to you. And, and she, great. So I didn't know any of this was happening. So they spoke on the phone. He came to the house. I was out. I was out of the house. He has my idol in my house. I didn't know it. So I'm out of the house. So he comes to the house and does like a two-hour interview with, it couldn't have been, it, and I have this tape somewhere, I have to find it, brewing into expounding on comedy and philosophy. My dad picks me up where I was. He says, we got to get home. I said, well, I guess, guess who's in the house? I said, well, I don't know. Guess who's in the house? I said, Aunt Rose? I don't know. Who. I just, no. Uncle Lou? George Collin. I said, get out. Because George... So I can't, he tells me, so I get to the house, I open the door, and there's George Collin walking. I said, oh my God. And so he finished it, he was going, but of course he was in a Jewish home. My parents said, no, you gotta eat, you gotta eat something. So, okay, and he twists his arm, he sits down, and there's a banquet of just way more food than he needed, or had probably ever eaten in his life. Just boxed and bagled him to death, just stuffed. And every 40 minutes he would call his wife and go, uh, I'm, no, I'm gonna be a little while here. These people are just, they're too nice. They're, no, no, I've already eaten. Uh, don't worry about it. I've, I've and I said, oh my God, I'm seeing what you're huh? Finally, he says, you know what? You guys have been, well, I have to, I have to get going. My father says, where are you going? Uptown. Yeah. What are you going uptown for? <laughs> I, I have to buy a camera. <laughs> Where are you going to buy a camera? Uh, I don't know, 48th and Broadway for a camera? Yeah, he goes, don't go there. I got a better place. I'm going to take you to a better place. <laughs> so he goes, no, that's all right. And I said, you know, no, I'm going to take you to a place. Gets in the car. Now my whole family's in the car. I'm in the backseat. I'm 14. George Collins in the front with my father. I'm going, this is the fucking greatest thing I've ever been a part of. This is... And he was huge on TV. So cars are pointing. and go, George Collins in the car. Look at that, George Collins. George Collins. I go, yeah, he's in my car. That's how cool I am. George Collins is in the front. So we get to this place downtown, just, just Jewish wholesale place. My father walks him in. He goes, Sal, Murray, you know George Collins? He goes, George Collins from Tell Show. He comes in. He wants to buy a camera. I don't know. I said, please, they'll take care of you. We'll we left him there. So last we saw, George Collin walks in there to buy a camera. A year later, this is the addendum. My sister goes, does a follow-up. She goes to see him. She says, I don't know if you remember, we did that whole interview in New York. And I, he says, oh, man, that was the weirdest interview I've ever done. I was on my way uptown to score some coke. seven pounds of salmon because he's that nice a guy. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love that Riser story. That was Paul Riser telling that last story there. Oh, wow. And that's so my dad, too. Such a nice man. Could never be really rude or anything. And uh, only rude on stage. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, I'd never heard that story until I was sitting in the audience the other night and heard that. And just love that. Makes me smile. Uh, I love the stories that people come up with about my dad and him intersecting into their lives. So anyway, uh, thank you, Logan, for doing that. That's wonderful. Uh, I'm so glad we have a little piece of it, too. It's beautiful. Uh, so uh, 
I'm very excited to have a, I have a guest today. <clears throat> Excuse my throat. I just don't know what's going on. Uh, Carlos Kotkin is my guest and Carlos and I met, uh, backstage at a spoken word venue here in LA called sit and spin. Um, there's normally vodka and pizza backstage and I, I'm pretty sure Carlos didn't eat, eat No, no, he didn't. I, I probably imbibed one or the other at some point, uh, during that evening. Uh, and yeah, I think Carlos, you were on, I don't think it was the first time I was on. Maybe though, you told the chicken story. You told the Farrah Fawcett story. I did tell the Farrah Fawcett story, yes. And uh, uh, the thing I love about Carlos is uh, your stories always start innocently enough. <laughs> they, they seem to. At least from the outside, when you come out on stage, it's like, oh, here's this lovely man. He's coming out to tell us a nice little innocent story. And it's not that they get crazy, you know, debauchery or anything like that. But there's this always lovely little ride you take us through in some way. And and uh, and the bottom line is, is that you always make me feel okay about being a human being on this earth. So <laughs> thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, and Carlos, uh, re- one of the reasons I wanted Carlos to come on today was because he's got this new book out called, Please God, Let It Be Herpes. <laughs> Just such a great fucking title. And it's a book about, uh, Carlos's multitude of dating adventures throughout his single life. Uh, some hysterical, some poignant, some all very entertaining. <laughs> So what I thought we would do today is Carlos and I will talk a little bit, but uh, I also wanted him to read some stories. So I'm going to let Carlos uh, start with uh, one of his stories. It's all the floor is yours, darling. Okay. I feel like saying hi. Please say, oh, please say hi. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you for having me Hi, Carlos. Yeah, we already said hello earlier, but not on the air officially. Yes, that's true. So uh, welcome to Waking from the American Dream. Thank you. Um, And uh, okay, let's let's start. Okay. I'm going to read uh, a story that's in the book. Uh, a lot of these stories have to do with uh, the action that I did not get. <laughs> and, uh, and this is one of them. Uh, okay. The story is called No Man's in Paradise. The majestic island of Bora Bora is a honeymooner's paradise, a dreamscape of turquoise bays, pristine beaches, and breathtaking sunsets where newlyweds can bask in the sun, enjoy delicious seafood dinners over a glass of fine wine, and cap their evenings with passionate lovemaking in a moonlit bungalow above the water. I went with my parents. It was my parents' 25th wedding anniversary, and they decided to commemorate the occasion with a trip to the South Pacific. They wanted me to join them. I was their only child, child of 23 years, nonetheless their only child, and they liked me. They insisted the trip would be better if I accompanied them. I decided to approach the excursion as a romantic location scout. During my stay, I would note the best places to eat, snorkel, sunbathe, Then one day I would visit with my future wife. I would be her chivalrous guide, knowing exactly where to go and what to do. She would say, Honey, this is amazing. You know the island so well. How was I lucky enough to end up with a husband as intelligent and adventurous and generous and caring and strong and sensitive and handsome and toned as you? You're like a gift. Bora Bora was a three-dimensional tropical postcard in every direction. After dropping off our luggage, my parents and I took a walk on the lush grounds of our welcoming hotel, ending up on the edge of a pier overlooking a glistening lagoon. A gust of wind blew my baseball cap off and it fell into the water. It was quickly recovered by a raven-haired beauty swimming nearby. 
She was topless. The instant I realized this woman was exposing her supple breast, I maintained careful, constant eye contact as I thanked her for returning my cap. Throughout the trip, I spotted numerous women who were prancing around half-naked. It was challenging to get a good look in the presence of my mom and dad, but I did my best. I hoped that upon returning to this wondrous part of the world, my future wife would keep her top on. The thought of some jerk ogling her bothered me. I was my parents' roommate during this vacation, so the three of us would not be experiencing any hanky-panky. At least I certainly hoped not. We were tourists through and through. One afternoon, we took a group cruise around Bora Bora in a motorboat. It was all couples on the boat, and me. I ended up sitting across from this gorgeous French girl. The girl was with a muscular man who possessively kept his arm around her at all times. She smiled at me. I could tell she was wondering what my story was. Apparently, my story was I had too much earwax. Because as I smiled back at the French girl, my mother poked her pinky finger into my ear and began grooming me. My mom, such a cock blocker. Later that evening, my parents and I had dinner at a restaurant called Bloody Mary's, a must for any visitor. Inside, it was all couples and me. Our pretty Polynesian waitress winked at me. She thought I was cute. Not cute like she wanted to take my clothes off and shower me with kisses. Cute like she thought I was adorable having dinner with my parents, like I was their little treasure. I expected my mother to introduce me as Carlitos, but thankfully she showed restraint. The seats in Bloody Mary's were very uncomfortable. They were hard palm tree stumps. If you sat on them for more than five minutes, your ass began to cry for mercy. Preparation age was probably an oft-requested after-dinner treat. But the food was good. Though not without its embarrassing moments, I was glad to have made the journey with my parents, thankful for the quality time in such a unique part of the world. When we left, I had enough knowledge of Bora Bora to ensure my second trip to the South Pacific, with a lovely young goddess by my side, would be a success. I looked forward to it. My next big trip, three years later, was a trip to Australia. Still a bachelor, I went for fun with my college friend, Benjamin. We wanted to see if the toilets really did flush in the opposite direction, and also hoped to meet some friendly Australian women. What we didn't want to do was suffer the endless flight from Los Angeles to Sydney. We thought it would be better to break things up, to stop somewhere on the way and stay a few days. Benjamin and I, Benjamin and I carefully studied the map and figured out the precise location halfway between California and Australia. On the island of Bora Bora, I showed Benjamin the best places to eat, snorkel, sunbathe. He was impressed. It was my second romantic location scout. As before, I took a group motorboat excursion around the island. It was all couples on the boat, including me and Benjamin. Our guide stopped on a smaller nearby island so people could pose for pictures with the breathtaking bay as a backdrop. I handed my camera to the guide. Benjamin was standing off to the side, taking in the view. The guide told me, bring your wife over here. I explained that Benjamin was not my wife. We were just two buddies who happened to be visiting one of the most romantic destinations on earth. Not an hour would go by without someone at the hotel or in some restaurant referring to Benjamin as my wife. For some reason, Benjamin was always the wife. I took this as the slightest bit of consolation. What became more tiring than repeatedly declaring that Benjamin and I weren't in love was constantly seeing all the people around us who were. Our surroundings left me with a yearning for female proximity. It was with this yearning I looked upon our attractive waitress at the world-famous Bloody Mary's restaurant, where I dined with Benjamin. 
The waitress wasn't the same one I had met with my parents a few years earlier, but she was just as pretty. Her name was Naomi. I remembered the uncomfortable seats at Bloody Mary's, so when we left the hotel on the way to dinner, I told Benjamin we should bring seat cushions from our room. When our mesmerizing waitress, Naomi, saw the cushions, she was amused. I explained we just wanted to be comfortable. She nodded, responding in a thick French accent. Oui, oui, you take rest from too much loving. What? No, 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 I protested. We're not in pain from too much loving. I've been here before with my parents, and I remember these seats got really uncomfortable. So, cushions, that's all. When we finished our meal, I decided to ask Naomi if there was a place on the island where people danced, and if so, would she and perhaps a lady friend like to go dancing with me and Benjamin? The only French I knew was voulez-vous coucher avec moi, which of course means would you like to sleep with me? I gestured to Naomi as one would gesture during a game of charade, signaling I was going to attempt to communicate with her. She nodded, ready. I spoke slowly, careful not to accidentally ask if she'd like to have sex. Voulez-vous? I paused, shimming my shoulder, simulating a dance move, and then continued asking, avec moi? My epic run at French ended with me pointing at Benjamin and another waitress to demonstrate I was not asking for Naomi to participate in some sort of threesome. Benjamin sat silently, perfectly still, like a professional street performer who remains motionless for hours on end in front of a bucket, hoping passers-by will leave change or dollar bills in the bucket. As a wingman, Benjamin was about as effective as my mother. Naomi smiled readily. She nodded her head, understanding my question. Then she said a bunch of French gibberish before blinding me with the shiny engagement ring on her finger, which I had failed to notice until then. So in the end, it didn't work out with Naomi or any other girl on the island. This was definitely not the place to search for single women. Nevertheless, my rest stop with Benjamin was ultimately enjoyable. As our plane departed en route to Australia, I stared out the window at the effortlessly beautiful island of Bora Bora. It struck me that I had now been there twice and never experienced any romance. Through the airplane window, I continued to watch Bora Bora grow smaller in the distance. Like the great World War II general, Douglas MacArthur, I couldn't help but think, I shall return with my woman. <laughs> Thank you. What was the Thank name you. of that? What do you call that piece? No Man's in Paradise. No Man's in Paradise. <laughs> Um, one of the things that what I was thinking about, because I was, I, I read about half your book, uh, leading up to, to today, and, uh, and, and it kind of happened when you first came and I asked you if you wanted some tea. And, uh, you know, you like I, we write autobiographical stuff, and now you've got a book out there, and people reading it, and, and so they're getting to know you as a person. What's that like? Have you encountered people who now want to talk to you about these intimate details of your life? <laughs> uh, I've, I've gotten emails from people around the country who uh, want to share their intimate, intimate details about their love life. Yes. And, uh, that's kind of, I'm uh, sort of uh, moved by that. It's that sweet. They're willing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I give them... I guess love advice, although I'm not the expert by any means. But but the one thing I do have told people that email me and share their horror stories mm -hmm. is that if I can find somebody, because I did mm -hmm. recently, anybody can. Mm. And I really, really found someone. It's not like you know, I've got this cute girl that I think has potential. I, I actually married her. So Yes, Carlos got <laughs> married in January. Yes. So ultimately the book does have a happy ending. It does. Uh, well, uh, for people who know me or are listening to this, because it's not in the actual book. No, it's not, yeah. I finished the book uh, before I, I, I got 
serious mm-hmm. with her and knew what was happening. I didn't. I had to. I have when I was as I was writing the book, I I felt that by the time this book comes out, I'm I'm going to be taken. That's and, beautiful. And I was. I just knew mm. it. It was mm. very strange. Just mm-hmm. I don't know something about the energy of writing the book. All about. Can we go behind the scenes a little bit? Yes. Is that all right? Yes, please. While I was reading that story, <laughs> yes. a dingo was smelling my crotch. And He's I just, talking I, about my big red dog, Ned, who he hasn't met yet, who Ned just like wandered in. <laughs> you did very well, actually, maintaining maintaining I, professional <laughs> decorum. You. It was right at the part where the waitress said, too much loving. I had a dog in my crotch. Ned's I, very sensitive to that kind of stuff. I he knows. So. He knows yeah. what's in the air. You know what I mean? <laughs> So I would just like to share with the. Uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and if you hear barking at any time soon, that will be Ned letting us know he has an opinion about things. Okay. So um, I want to know a little bit about your journey in writing the book itself. Um, first of all, when did you start writing uh, these autobiographical essays? I started writing for Sit and Spin. So I started writing the book without realizing that I was writing the book. Now, and and so before Sit and Spin. Were you sitting around writing essays? Were you doing other spoken word? What um, before sit and spin? I was doing stand up. Oh, stand-up were comedy. you? Yes, oh. but I was doing sort of sit and spin version of, of uh-huh. stand up. So uh-huh. you know, I wouldn't go up there and say, "What's the deal with airplane food?" <laughs> right. Although I did that once. I, w- I wore a safety helmet, <laughs> like a taekwondo safety helmet, right. and I went up and said, "What's the deal with airplane food?" <laughs> that was, that was fun. <laughs> but mostly, I would. Talk about myself uh-huh. and, and whatever was going on in my life, and then and then I discovered Sit and Spin through my friend Ben Wexler. He, mm. he invited me to come to this show, and I had never heard of it then. And I asked him, "Well, what is it?" He said, well, "It's a bunch of people are going to read essays." I said, "That sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want not go academic to that. essays. <laughs> I didn't want to go, and I'm I, not I went, going. <laughs> I went against my will." <laughs> And it was fantastic. Yeah, it's a great it was. Show. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. And so I asked Ben if I if I if he could help me get into that show, and, and he did. And uh, the first that's Ned. That's it's Ned not doing a, that. Not it's an not earthquake. an earthquake yet. <laughs> I like Ned. <laughs> yes. I'm going to take him with me. Um, <laughs> yes. My next. He's participating in the radio show today. So I went and I did sit and spin. The first piece I wrote for sit and spin was uh, a story about going to a prom when I was 29. Mm-hmm. It's in your which book. Is in the book. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a great story. And, uh, and then I got invited back. And as you know, uh, mm-hmm. when you do sit and spin, you have to do a new piece. You do. Yeah. And so uh, that was beneficial because every time I went back, I was forced to come up with something. Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a, uh, I don't know about you, but I know for me, if I have a deadline or some structure, it helps me to sit down and actually form thoughts on, on paper. You know, if there's just kind of this nebulous, well, someday someone will hear this or read this, uh, I have trouble. But boy, if I know that I'm going to be on stage, you know, June 21st somewhere, it's like, holy shit, I got to get my shit together. Right. Yeah, that's helpful. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. So, uh, I ended up with a pile mm-hmm. of these essays and, uh, I had a, I have a manager mm-hmm. and I, I talked to him about maybe I said, maybe we could get a book out of this because mm-hmm. I was getting asked a lot. I was doing a lot of other, once I did sit and spin, I started getting invited to a lot of other shows similar, right? which there are quite a few now. There are, it's actually <laughs> become quite a little, um, 
industry. It's certainly in LA. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think there's 1200 in Los Angeles. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, so one uh, every 12 feet, every 12 seconds. <laughs> and, uh, so my, my manager sent, uh, he said, give me, send me your, what you think are your five strongest pieces. And I did. And he sent them to some book agents that he knew and they read them and, um, they had their, their thought. They thought they were good. Mm-hmm. They thought that they needed to be longer mm-hmm. and they, they needed to write the whole book out. Right. Right. So I did that. And that was not the book that came out. Actually, that was 18 stories. Four of them were about dating and 14 of them were about other things like chickens or uh-huh. whatever, uh, not about dating. And, uh, they sent them out to the various publishers and we mostly got rejected. Yeah. And a lot of the people were saying the same thing, which was we enjoyed these stories, but he doesn't have a big enough platform. We can't market this. It's always about the marketing platform. Catch 22. It is. Yeah. Uh, but Penguin, uh, said that as well. Mm -hmm. But then they said, but we really like, we like this so much that we'd like to try to, to create something out of this. And what we really liked was the four dating stories Uh out of the, out of the 18. And we're wondering if he could write a book of just that. Does he have enough material to write a book of just dating stories? And in that moment, I realized why I had gone on so many horrible dates. (laughs) It's like, oh my God. Meaning was brought to your life. (laughs) Yeah, there was a purpose. I didn't understand. It was ultimately about a book deal, Carlos. Yeah, that's what it was. I know. When I was almost catching herpes, I had no idea. No, hello. Yeah. But the book agent called me and she said, do you have enough uh, dating experiences to write an entire book? Are you kidding? Oh, my God. There's a God. I didn't, I didn't now, know. Now I know there's a God, yeah, for there's sure. A, there's a destiny. There's everything. The universe has been conspiring in your favor. Yeah. <laughs> I want to track down Herpes Girl and send her a basket of... <laughs> Kind of like Adele and the boyfriend that broke up with her and inspired yeah. all of her, her all of her songs, yeah. you know? Yeah, the herpy yeah. girl. <laughs> We've lost touch, but maybe she's listening. Yeah. If you are, don't contact me. I was, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so how long did it take you to write the rest of the material for the other? I mean, how many? You have like 12 stories in there now? There's 18. There are 18. So I, oh, I, wow. I put aside 14 mm-hmm. from the original book. Wow. And I wrote uh, paragraphs, summaries of what the new stories would be mm-hmm. and turned them in mm-hmm. to Penguin. And then we got on the phone uh, for an hour with the with the person who's now my editor. Right. He wanted to make sure that I wasn't an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you could speak in full sentences, and things I like that. talk. Right. And, yeah. Right. And, uh, and that went well. Mm-hmm. And then he got back to us about two weeks later and said, let's do this. Wow. And, uh, and when we got the go ahead, um, I don't know, it took about six or seven months to write the new stories, but that, that sounds like a not very long, I think, but that's because I, I had them all in my head. I had worked on them. I had talked about them on stage if I hadn't written them. So I had actually been writing it. Right. You'd already kind of mined and shaped this material in some way. Yeah. and, so, and certainly having the other four stories, I'm guessing, you know, it's like, uh, okay, I know kind of, the, you know, you know, the shape of things is, you know, it, it's, it's so fun being a part of the spoken word world because everyone I know, you know, there's about five or six people who do sit and spin a lot and they, everyone's got their own kind of style and their own way of doing, you know, there's like you and there's Taylor Negron and he's got his style and, you know, and, and then I have, I have my style and what I talk about and, and you start to learn like, 
no matter what, like how to do your own stories at some point. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you you know, find yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You do find yourself. Yeah. Do you ever feel, um, because I I kind of get this for myself sometimes and I wonder, that's Stella barking. If anyone can hear that, a lot of dog things going on today. Um, maybe this will lead to a book deal. It'll be about dogs. My book. (laughs) Um, do you ever wish that or or want or desire to write in a different tone or a different way? Do, do you feel I mean your your voice is your voice, but do you feel like you have other voices in there that want to express also in a different way? I don't know. Like what, what sort of voices? I don't know. <laughs> well, there's the grandmother. <laughs> no, no. Um because I have like I, I don't know. I have these two main ways I like to write. It's either kind of um, kind of bringing like a lot of heart to the story and a lot of kind of beauty to things. And then I have a part of me that's got more of like the Anne Lamott kind of snarky humor person. And, um, I, I kind of like feel like I can't switch them on at the same time. I have like, it's an either or switch for me. Uh, I was just wondering. I think I, it's dictated by what, what the subject is for mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. What, what I'm writing about. Um, I would like to write and I have, uh, but I'd like to write more fictional stuff. Because most of what I write is taken directly from my life. So it would be fun to write a book that, that's not that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a narrative. And uh, I haven't done as much of that as, as I would like to. And I'm sure that that would be somewhat of a different voice, maybe not entirely different. Right, but. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just, I don't know. I just, I, I struggle with this voices in my head thing. But it's really, it's fine. I'm okay. Good. <laughs> You don't need to call a doctor. No, no, they're not telling me to do anything. (laughs) There's Christ is not involved, nor the CIA. Just letting you know at this point. (laughs) And you're good. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I I feel good. I really do. I need a vacation, though. I do. Scotland. Uh, Yes, it's coming. It is. I know. Just how many more days? 10 something. 12, I think. 12 days. Do they eat strange things in Scotland? Um. They eat, well, they eat this thing called haggis. Right. Right. Which is basically the innards. It's basically sausage. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's get real. You know, sausage is all the crap of the animal that you wouldn't eat normally that they shove into a tube and you eat it. And this one, they just happen to shove into a sheep's bladder and cook it that way. Yum. That doesn't sound strange at all. No, not at all. Perfectly normal for a bunch of people surrounded by sheep. (laughs) Are you going to try some of them? I've eaten haggis before. Yeah. Mm. This will be my seventh trip to Scotland. Oh, yeah, I have a friend who's You're got a Scottish. I am actually part Scottish, mostly Irish, but part Scottish too. And so it's my people, it's my land. I feel it when I'm there. Um and uh but other than haggis, no. I mean they eat sticky toffee pudding, but that's, you know, that's a good thing. It's a dessert. It's really good. I went to London once and they had a buffet out and they had uh I think it was called black pudding. <gasps> Oh, yeah, that is, yeah, that's I a strange thing. I didn't know what I was looking at. It kind of looked like a brownie, but not. And the guy he, he, the guy working there uh, suggested I eat it. I said, well, what exactly is it? And he said it was blood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a vampire, so <laughs> yeah. I passed on the baked blood. Yeah, it's basically sausage with a baked, a lot of blood in it. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, there's no way. That's right. That is the other weird thing. I've seen that on plates. My husband would eat that. He'll eat anything. I won't even uh, go near it. 
Um, and and the, the cool thing about where I am in Scotland, though, is they have um, lots of farms around you and stuff. And so you go to the local village and when you walk by the butcher, which is like the old fashioned butcher shop, they list the farms where the animals come from. So, and the names too? Well, not the, the names. Of the animals? Not the names of the animals. No, it's not like Portlandia. <laughs> if you've seen that episode of Portlandia where they name the chicken. But, but, but what I thought was interesting about that was it made me feel better about eating the local hmm. produce and, and, and food and meat, because I felt, well, at least there's some sort of like local relationship with the food. You know, it's not like it's going through some factory in Davenport, Iowa, and then being right. trucked here, pork chickens, you know, wherever they come from. Um, so I just, I just, I found it and I found it charming too, that my lamb would be coming from, you know, the McDowell farm or yeah, something. The McDowell's are good people. They are good people. They are. <laughs> Maybe think of the movie Babe a little bit too, that right. that's kind of harder than you can't, it's hard to eat that part. Babe's yeah. delicious. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so have you been traveling for the book? Yes, a little bit. Uh, I just got back from New York City and then I went to, to Portland, Oregon and then I went to Santa Barbara. And uh, I'm gonna. The next thing for the book is that I'm gonna be at the American Librarians Association, their national conference. I heard they're partiers. I heard that too. They told They've me it's be. gonna be like 300 wild librarians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, librarians are pretty radical people, actually. Are they? Yeah, because they these are the people who really uh, stand up for, uh, for the First Amendment on some level. I mean, mm. they're they're very hardcore about protecting access to information. And, and they've, they've got a really kind of radical line about it. And I've, I've always thought that is probably one of the coolest things about librarians. You're going to have a blast there. It's going to be like a Greek bacchanal. It will, because you know, when they go on convention, those librarians, their glasses come off and their hair comes down. And yeah. <laughs> as soon as they hear the title of my book, yes. they're going to start unbuttoning their top. They're going to know you're a player. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, a lot of people think that I'm a player. Or they used to, um, out of the market now. And so I don't, I don't count, right? No, but, you didn't. <laughs> but when I was dating, people would think that I'm a, a player. Uh, I don't know why. I think because I would, uh, I would have trouble taking a bra off and they would think that was a tactic. Yeah, right. Yeah. You, you're a player. No, seriously. I've always had trouble with this. <laughs> really? Do you have any instructions, please? <laughs> I've never. That's so <laughs> that's not in the book. That's a special feature. That, that wow, just, that's exclusive to yeah, this show today. I've never <laughs> been able to easily take a bra off. It's even I at times have difficulty with yeah. it. It's a complicated little thing. I think it's partially just being nervous too. Y yeah, but you and because you know once the bra is off, things are happening next. Right. <laughs> so it's it's just the step towards the things are happening. It's you know it's like you know they're introducing you on stage. It's like you know you're gonna performance is coming soon i've always felt like you only have so much time i don't know why but you got to do this fast or it's not going to happen so i was in a panic and it was like dealing with explosives or something you got to do this now and i think the panic i so you're not one of those guys who just seems like they just like wave their hand over the back of the bra and it's like boing yeah, pops I, right off i know there's people there must be that. at yeah. least in the movies there yeah. are i've seen it in the movies yeah, with one hand just snap <laughs> right. Yeah, that's not me. But it come, I'm the opposite, and then people think that's a tactic. But not just that, just all sorts of things. If you just say, I'm not a player, automatically people think you're a player. <laughs> I've learned. It's that reverse psychology thing. Yeah. Something weird about... It's because people want 
need people to be players? I don't know. What don't is know. that? Well, yeah. something about me too, specifically that, mm. that they don't trust. <laughs> <laughs> you look pretty trustworthy. Thank I don't you. know. I mean, thank you. I look more trustworthy now that I have a ring on. Oh, that is, yeah, that yeah. is true. And I have noticed that, that a certain, not every woman, but certain women have been more attentive to me ever since I put a ring on. Hmm. Now yes. I wonder if that's because they like married men or because you're safe. Yeah. Safe, unattainable. Yeah. I guess I yeah. should have put a ring on 10 years ago. See? <laughs> then you would have been a player because then you would have been, been playing. Player. But it didn't even occur to me. <laughs> I just thought if, if that did occur to me, I would have thought that's wrong. <laughs> clearly, you're not playing material, Carlos. Things, yeah. <laughs> no, clearly. I don't know. I wouldn't have any idea where to score some blow. I have no idea. I just smoked pot two years ago for the well, first time. Once? Once. How did it go? It felt like somebody pressed pause on me. <laughs> And I didn't care about anything in the universe. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. My friend was explaining to me that when he smokes pot and then he puts something in the microwave, he's sure that it's going to be done, the thing. And he goes back and only eight seconds has gone by. Mm. He's like, wow, yeah. man, it's still got five more minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so it is kind of like a big pause button. It was. Yeah. And I, I had a lot of trouble inhaling because I'd never smoked anything. Mm. So partly out of inexperience and partly uh, just fear, <laughs> I was having a lot of trouble. The person I was with was like blowing into my mouth, junior <laughs> high school style. They were starting to get a little impatient. They said, look, you just got to suck it up. Just suck as hard as you can. Yeah, big inhale. Yeah. Oh, it was dear. a pipe. Wow. Okay, good. That's good. And so I did. Yes. Like really, really hard. Right. And before I felt anything, oh, the Lord. person said, oh, that was a good one. <laughs> And it just felt like somebody had crammed just just a ton of barbed wire into my chest. Mm. And I coughed for half an hour. And then I'm pretty sure I got stoned about 15 minutes after that. I'm sure you did. I didn't expect to be talking about this. I know. You're like Barbara Walters. I know. Next thing you know, I'll ask you what kind of tree you think you are. And then I'll make you cry. Um, Good luck with that. Okay. Well, that's a challenge. I like that. Damn it. I haven't cried in I don't know when. <laughs> He just girded himself in yeah. his chair to yeah. like, bring it on, Let's bitch. Let's do this. <laughs> and I want to say your your description of smoking pot. Um, you'd be great in like an anti pot smoking commercial because that was a nice description. The part about the barbed wire oh, in the lungs. Yeah, that's why I haven't done it since. <laughs> See, but and that starts to go away, Carla. Yeah, but I thought about that. Like once that feeling goes away, what have you done to yourself? Right, that that's because okay. that, be, right because your lungs are telling you what the fuck have you done yeah. here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was terribly painful. It wasn't worth the pressing pause on for me, you know. Yeah. For other people, I, I have no judgments. <laughs> no, of course not. Anybody that wants to smoke pot, that's fine. This is not North Korea. <laughs> Yet. Yet. <laughs> We're working on it every day. And maybe they do have pot in North Korea. I've never been. They might have like really good pot in North yeah. Korea for all I'm sure they do. The politicians, <laughs> the leadership. Yes. Yeah. How could they not? Exactly. That explains it all now. North Korea has been explained. Because they don't want the citizens to get the good shit. No, it's exactly right. See? Sorry for cursing, but there's it, been a lot of cursing. It's okay. It's the internet. Yeah. We can do whatever we want, basically. It, really, that that's dangerous, too. Um, what was I going to say? Damn it. You made me laugh. Um, uh, oh, I know what I wanted to talk about because you've, I've never heard you write a story about this yet, and I'm sure you have, and I'm, you've written about it. But I noticed in some of your stories in your book, you talked about, um, 
that, well, A, you went to USC film school for mm-hmm. a year and you left. That's like, first of all, like the cojones to leave the USC film school. I mean, this is, we're talking Steven Spielberg and George Lucas people. We're talking George Lucas. Oh, where did USC Spielberg USC didn't want anything to do with Steven Spielberg. Oh. Said, I, we don't think you have any potential. You need to get away from here. Oh, that was smart and of him. And now he has a building with his name on it. Yes. Oh, that's why I was associating Spielberg with it. He so went they... to Cal State Long Beach with oh, Steve Martin. Did he really? Yeah. I did not know that. I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah. Wow. And and uh, your story in your book about the... The blow-up doll. Yes. It's so beautiful. <laughs> It's such well, a thank great, you. it's such a great story. You'll have to buy the book, people, to to get a glimpse of that. But I wanted to know: Do you work your day job? Because we're you know we're we we're, we're storytellers here. I you know I know you have a book out, but do you still work in Hollywood? Do you do production stuff? I do. Um, I have uh, knock on wood been able to support myself as a writer for about a year now. Oh, fantastic. Um, partly because uh, the book got optioned by the Fox network, FBC. Mm-hmm. Um, we went around and pitched it to mm-hmm. all the networks. And mm-hmm. NBC and, and FBC uh, both wanted it. Wow. And uh, Fox had the first right of refusal mm-hmm. because of the producers involved. But we, I wrote a pilot for, uh, for the book. Uh-huh. Um, we didn't, we didn't get to shoot the pilot, but uh, they did the, uh, uh, What's the what's the word? Pay me. They, yes, money was in the bank. <laughs> yes, yeah. for writing it. Oh, that's and, great. And uh, and then I also got some other uh, writing assignments. Uh, ever since, uh, I think the book opened a lot of doors, mm. and I've I've been fortunate enough to get some other writing jobs in the entertainment industry. Oh, that's fantastic! And, uh, so I don't have to. That's my day job. Oh, now. congratulations! Thank you. I, the day job I had before that, uh-huh. uh huh. I. I, wa- I watched DVDs before they came out for quality control Did purposes. You, yeah. So you'd have to watch the movies over and over and over again. And like one time I went into work, they said, good morning, today you'll be watching Dances with Wolves six times. <laughs> wow. And they weren't kidding. Wow. They weren't, it wasn't an exaggeration. You had to watch it in English and then Spanish, French, and the commentary and the closed captions. And you had to make sure that there weren't any mistakes. And wow. And you go through the five emotional stages <laughs> <laughs> when you do that. And I'm now fluent in, in, uh, in Lakota Sioux. <laughs> I really am. Shumani Tutankwa Uachi. Really, wow, that you means, really are. Yes. That means my name is Dancer with Wolf. Yeah, I actually uh, read somewhere that the language they spoke in that movie wasn't the language of the actual tribe that they were talking oh, about. Well, whatever it is, I'm fluent in it. Yeah. Now. So I, and, but it is an actual, it was like, Apache or something like that. Huh. Yeah, but but you are fluent in it. Wow, that's... From watching it endlessly. So you could write in that if you needed to yeah. write a sitcom for those people. You yeah. could now do that. Yeah, and before that I had all sorts of jobs uh, in the entertainment industry. My first job in my whole life was working as a production assistant on a movie called Canine with Jim Belushi and a German Shepherd. <laughs> Wait, I do remember that. That was back in the day when it's they were making movie. those movies. Yeah, it's like Tom Hanks movie. did one yeah. and... I was a child. I, I wasn't even allowed to work. I had to lie about my age. And then they gave me keys to a van and told me to go buy some supplies. That was the first time I drove, too. That <laughs> was, was quite an experience. Oh, my was, God. And, uh, and then I worked on a, a few other movies uh, as, a, as a gopher boy, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. And then I moved up to the assistant position. Mm-hmm. And yep. I was an assistant to quite a few people. I was an assistant to Lieutenant Dan for 
a little while. Oh, really? Gary Sinise. Oh, nice. Not Lieutenant Dan. His name is Gary Sinise. Yes, that's his real name. And he's a very uh, outstanding individual. Excellent to know. And uh, I worked for Victoria Abril. She's a Spanish actress that was in a lot of Almodovar mm-hmm. films. She was in Time Me Up, Time Me Down mm. and High Heels. I dropped out to go work for Barry Levinson's company. Mm. I thought that was much more of a, an education. Yeah. And he was making a movie called Jimmy Hollywood at the time with Joe Pesci and Christian Slater. And he cast Victoria Abril. And I was just working in the office, answering phones and making copies. And he called me and he, was, and he said, uh, do you know who Victoria Abril is? I said, I, no, I do not. And he said, well, you should go rent some of her movies because she's coming on Monday and I want you to take care of her. That's going to be your job. I don't want to worry about it. Uh huh. I said, all right. So I, I was excited uh-huh. and I drove to San Diego. I rented two of her films and I drove to San Diego where my parents were living. I said, look, I'm going to, this is going to be my boss. Uh-huh. And we put on uh, high heels and she's <laughs> hanging from a pole whilst a man is performing oral sex on her. <laughs> You're sitting in the room with your mom. With mother. my parents. Yeah, with my mom and dad and my mom. I remember my mom, this is going to be your boss. And my dad said, well, that should be fun. <laughs> and it was. It was outstanding. It was an unforgettable experience working for her. Wow, that's great. And I, I worked for a producer named Edgar Sherrick. And um, that was, uh, I, I, I've talked about some of these stories on, on stage at USC. Have you? Uh, especially in the moth, I've told quite a few mm. of these stories where you don't read, where you have to mm-hmm. just talk. And, yeah. And I told a story about, uh, working for Edgar. I was his driver and he made me dress up. I never had any suits until I worked for Edgar and he bought me suits. And then he would take me into whatever meetings that I would drive him over to. And wow. he, he would tell me, if you have anything to contribute, speak up. Don't be a sissy. So we went over to 20th Century Fox several times and, uh, through the, the, the executives that I got to meet there from those just Edgar taking me in. I ended up getting a job as a creative executive at the studio. <laughs> wow. yeah. And I was there for two years. That was another one of my many jobs. Wow. I felt like I was undercover the whole time. I did a good job. I did my best. I, it wasn't like I was slacking or anything. And why'd you feel undercover? Because I'm not a, an executive. You're not a suit. heart. Yeah. You know, I hated my shoes. <laughs> I got to get out of I so can understand that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting that the Hollywood, hmm, the paths, the many paths here in Hollywood, and and you know deciding w- which direction to go. There's the craftsman behind the scenes path, you know, and and then there's the executives, and then there's the agents and the managers, and yeah. then there's the front of the camera and writer and. Um, it, it, and each of those have their own subculture and language. Definitely, definitely. And they all kind of pit themselves against each other. You know, it's kind of like high school. It's like little cliques, you know, and you go on a set somewhere and it's, you know, the actors versus the writers and the crafts, you know, it is. I absolutely agree. Although I will say also that I feel like I've been very fortunate and 99.9% of the people that I've had a chance to work for and with have been excellent people. Oh, wow. Including the people at the studio. Wow, look at you. Yeah. That's very unusual in this town. I've heard horror stories. Yeah, yeah. I don't have any. That's beautiful. Yeah. So you can't write a book about your Hollywood horror stories? No, I can't. No. Everybody's, uh, there's a lot of, there's for all the talk of how Mm -hmm. terrible people are in the entertainment industry, there's people that are equally as good of course yes that's boring y- yeah <laughs> yes. but that's fact yeah yeah and i would say the majority of the people that make this uh this town run are amazing great people have a lot of integrity have a lot of creativity 
Um, and then there's the people that just uh, want to take up more space than they should. And I found that the, generally speaking, the more successful a person is in my in my experience, the mm-hmm. more successful a person has been, the kinder they've been, mm-hmm. the more down to earth. And yeah, I, I've. I'm sure there's somebody out there that's a, you know a superstar or whatever and has all kinds of power that, that abuses. Yeah, their, I've but, had friends who've been assistants to people who just, I mean. Like swimming with shark stories. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm not saying that's not out there. <laughs> but uh, you're you're blessed because you really. I mean, not you didn't run into um, any monsters. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> um, so, how was the transition for you being a, a writer? Are you writing for other shows, other people's material? Are you? I am. Yeah. What's mm. that been like for you? It's been good. I, I, the people that I'm working with are fantastic. That's They're great. Phenomenal. They're very creative and. Um, I'm, I'm Are you working like in a writer's room situation or more on your own? And then, I'm sorry for being coy. No, you, I don't want you don't have to talk to about who it is or whatever. That's uh, totally fine. But, but just I, in general, I, I've been instructed to be coy. I totally get it. That's totally fine. And um, I've been working mostly on my own, although uh, it's it's definitely collaborative projects than what I'm working on. Cool. But you know, we'll collaborate and then I'll go off and write right, by myself. Right. 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 In my own room. That's and, that's great. Uh, someday I, w- I will happily gladly. Yeah, tell you yeah, what I'm talking yeah, about. yeah. <laughs> when you're able to, that'll be great. No, but I'm just, I'm really, what I'm excited about and just, it just kind of really warms my heart so much is that, um, people, someone like you who's obviously a great person and you're full of talent and it's getting recognized and people are seeing it and you're, you know, getting opp- real opportunities and a book and everything. It just, it, it gives me actual hope. <laughs> I'm glad I could do that. Thank you, Carlos. You've given me hope because, you know, really, you look at the Kardashians and people like that, and God bless them. They do their thing, and they've got little perfumes and purses and whatever they sell. I'm not quite sure. Um, more power to them. But I think, you know, I, I mean, you know, part of the sit and spin community we're part of, there's so much talent out there. The pool is amazing. And most of my talented, talented friends are starving artists. And, um, you know, it's just always great when someone from the team gets, you know, gets the leg up into something big and real. It's very exciting. Well, thank you. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm far from having quote made it, but yeah, but you're, you're doing your craft every day and you're, you're getting acknowledged for, for what you get to do. And, uh, shit, man, that's 99% of it. I mean, you know, is it, is it Woody Allen that said 99% or some percentage is showing up? It it is true. (laughs) Well, persistence really is a lot in this town. Perseverance is. Perseverance and talent and luck. And I don't know what the percentage is there, but those are the three th- elements right there, you know? Right. But I, I think, I think in my humble opinion, if you take out the perseverance, then you're done. Yeah. Absolutely. Agreed. A hundred percent. Yeah. If you keep showing up at the door, someone eventually is going to let you in. It's kind of like the Wizard of Oz. You know, when they get to Oz, they don't, they don't let that doorkeeper guy, gatekeeper keep them out. They stick around the gate for a while. Until he finally is like, okay, Definitely. fine, come in. Definitely. <laughs> but well, I, I would like to reiterate, I don't know what I'm talking about. No, I, and neither do I. I'm, so I am a guppy swimming in the ocean. And um, a fine guppy. A <laughs> fine guppy growing up to Nemo status, I'm sure. <laughs> you know? 
Um, what else did I want to talk about? Oh, I know what I wanted to talk about. Uh, you lived in Anaheim for a while mm-hmm. by Disneyland. Did you go a lot as a kid? Are you a Disneyland person? No, although uh, I, I, we, I have plans with my wife to go in a couple of weeks. Really? Yes. Have you been uh, before? I have been before because I lived, you know. Okay. Right. But it's the kind of thing where if, if you're really close to it, you, you think <laughs> it's, it's there. I can go whenever I want. So then you never go. Right. <laughs> so I didn't go. I wasn't a Disneyland freak. You didn't? But I, I'm aware, I was aware of it. Well, I'm sure because I, the Matterhorn was right there on you know, the horizon. We could hear the fireworks every night. <laughs> right. It sounded like giants <laughs> stomping on the ground. Ba-boom. Yeah. Yeah. But, I, 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 um, it's weird growing up in Southern California because you do become the, you know, it becomes part of your thing right. where your parents take you once a year. And I was indoctrinated very early. Mm. I think I was three and a half or something. And that's when you believe everything is real. So all that magic was real to me. And then when people come from out of town, you have to. Yeah. To and I, I don't mind because, uh, I, I kind of like going about once a year. My, my cousin and I used to get annual passes, which was great because then you could just, we'd go for just a few hours. We'd literally go and do two rides and have a meal and leave and thinking, well, we'll, we'll go back next week if we want, you know, we don't have to do everything. That's the way to do Disneyland. That sounds good. Yeah. Although uh, often people would come from out of town and they equate Anaheim with Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> and so they say, let's go to Disneyland. And then the same day, let's go to the Chinese theater. And yeah. then after that, let's go to San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, no, California's big, big yeah. place. Sprawl. Sprawl. Um, um, uh, oh, shit. See, that's my brain. It oh, does it's okay. Of, oh, thank God. He thinks it's okay. It's no pressure. I'm going to go for a walk. Oh, good. Could you do that? Let us know how it is out there. It's beautiful out there, actually, today. So um, I want you to read your other story now. Okay. Okay, I'm excited. What's this one called? This one's called Blind Date. Oh, I love this story. Okay, great. And uh, before I start, I'd just like to let anyone who's listening know that there's a dog in my crotch as I'm reading this. All right, here we go. Okay, Blind Date. I was surfing the internet, and for some reason my computer led me to a list of top ten things a person can do naked. Besides the obvious, the activities one could do in their birthday suit included skydiving, water skiing, running across the field during a professional sporting event, and naked yoga. I clicked on the link to naked yoga and found there was a naked yoga class regularly held in Los Angeles. The class was attended exclusively by men, and the men, per the website, were predominantly gay. But straight men were welcome. I didn't go. I did read the website's frequently asked questions. The most frequently asked question was, what should I do if I get a boner? The answer, be proud of it. This is what I was reading when the phone rang. It was my mother. What are you doing, she asked. I told her I was looking at a website for a yoga studio where the people practice naked. She gasped in shock. You mean without any clothes? I clarified I meant literally naked, not emotionally. Since I had just read the most frequently asked question and found it amusing, I decided to share it with her. My mother's response threw me for a loop. What's a boner, she innocently inquired. My mother is from Mexico City. English is not her first language. While her English is 99% proficient, every now and then she will encounter an unfamiliar word among the 1%. Boner was one of them. I asked if she was serious. Yes, she replied. I've never heard that word. What is it? I answered as delicately as possible. A boner is what happens when a man gets excited. Oh, uttered my mother in recognition. Since we had gotten to this point, I thought it only fair to share the website's answer. 
I first asked my mother what she thought the website advised in the event of a boner. After careful deliberation, my mother replied, um, leave it on the floor and we'll clean it up later. At this point, I decided the best course of action would be to pretend our conversation never took place. I hit the reset button, asking my mother, how are you doing? Are you calling me for something specific? Thankfully, my mother was happy to go this new direction. There's a girl I want you to meet, she informed me. My mother would sometimes moonlight as my pimp. She'd set me up on blind dates with a young lady who's a friend of a friend from her sewing group or exercise class or the sister of her dental hygienist. I'd go out with these women, and then later I would ask my mother what she was thinking. My mother would reply, what do you mean? She's nice. I'd remind my mother that of the top five qualities I was looking for in a woman, nice was not one of them. There was one blind date unlike any other. My mother once set me up on a blind date with a girl who was actually blind. Her name was Erica. She was a friend of a woman named Susanna, who my mother knew from the Viking Club. The Viking Club sounds like a club for badasses, but is actually a group of women who are passionate about sewing. Susanna's blind friend, Erica, had recently moved to San Diego from Monterey, Mexico. She was having a tough time meeting people. That's where I came in. I thought it would be interesting to meet a blind woman. When I called Erica, her voice was bright and cheery. Anyone speaking to her over the phone would never guess she was blind. I'm not sure what I was expecting, perhaps stupidly, the sound of her crashing into things as she walked around her apartment, but there was none of that. We spoke for a few minutes. Erica gave me her address. We decided the following Saturday night I would drive down to San Diego from Los Angeles and we would have dinner. Erica said she looked forward to it. I replied, great, see you Saturday, and hung up instantly regretting my choice of words. By the time I got to San Diego that Saturday night, it was dark outside. The lights were off in Erica's apartment. Naturally, I assumed she was not home. This annoyed me. We made plans. I drove all the way from Los Angeles, and the girl wasn't even there. What a jerk. Then it occurred to me, Erica wasn't the kind of girl who was into lights. I knocked on the door. A dog immediately began barking. Soon after, the lights went on. Then the door opened. I saw a well-dressed, smiling young woman with long, curly, reddish hair and the most beautiful green eyes. She stared directly at me with those eyes. Her stare was so deep and intense, it was as if she was staring into my soul. I thought maybe she could see, at least a little. Can you see me, I asked with hesitation. Erica's smile widened and her eyes drifted upward. No, she explained. I'm blind. I told her she had just been looking right at me. She responded, lucky shot. I was invited inside where I met her dog, Helen, named after Helen Keller. Helen was a black Labrador who was overjoyed to be meeting me. She jumped all over me, licked me, brought me her toys. Erica had to calm her down. I think the dog was happy mostly because the lights were on. The dog wasn't blind. I took a seat on the couch beside Erica with Helen settled at Erica's feet. We exchanged pleasantries about the weather. Then I asked Erica if she would like to touch my face. I asked this out of courtesy based on blind people I had seen in the movies. Erica chuckled. She shook her head and told me, I don't need to touch your face. Once it was determined there would be no face touching, we decided to head out for dinner. Erica grabbed a harness and slipped it onto Helen. The moment Helen got in the harness, she became a completely different dog. Helen was focused on a mission like the Terminator, only like a nice Terminator, the kind of Terminator who would help blind people cross a street. Helen laid on the floor of the front seat of my car and between Erica's feet. We drove to the Gaslamp Quarter in downtown San Diego, a popular entertainment district with numerous restaurants. It took a while to find parking. 
At one point, Helen sat up from the floor, looked out the window, and went, <sighs> Despite the fact that we were different species, it was clear she was saying, Can we park already? I told Helen we would find parking as soon as we could. She accepted this and went back to the floor. Eventually, we did find parking, and the three of us walked to a Thai restaurant with Helen peacefully under the table. I read Erica the menu. In full disclosure, I skipped a few items. Some of the entrees didn't sound very appealing. After the menu reading and our orders were placed, Erica asked what I was wearing. For a split second, I forgot. As I looked down at my wardrobe so I could begin describing it, I heard Erica say, You have to look? She could tell what I was doing by my pause. At another point during our conversation, she suddenly commented, That's a big truck. I didn't know what she was talking about until a few moments later when I looked out the restaurant window and saw an enormous truck drive by. Besides having the powers of an X-Men, Erica also had a dirty sense of humor. I won't repeat her jokes, I'll only state that some of them would make a sailor blush. Since she was kidding around so much, I decided I would kid around too. I told her I was going to use the men's room, and if I wasn't back in an hour, I suggested she call a cab. Erica immediately turned pale, her expression became grave. I took her hand, apologizing profusely, promising her it was a bad joke. Then I went to the men's room and peed as fast as I could. When I returned, I saw she was listening intently for my arrival. The rest of the evening went without a hitch. Erica told me of her studies, her desire to travel the world. She especially wanted to visit Paris. I thought this was interesting, given her situation. The night came to an end. I drove Erica back to her apartment. Helen's harness was removed, and she was once again happy-go-lucky. I told Erica I was going to give her a kiss on the cheek, and then I did. We did not become an item, but we did become friends. She did visit Paris and is now living in Toronto with her boyfriend. I think of her from time to time when I make the mistake of complaining about traffic or my bills. At least I can see traffic in my bills. Incidentally, amazingly, the very next girl I went out with was deaf. But that's another story. <laughs> yes. I, love, I love your writing, Carlos. Oh, thank you, Kelly. Yeah, it's just... There's, there's something, um, what are the words I want to use? Words. Use your words, Kelly. Use your words. There's uh, a beautiful simplicity about your writing. There's a way you just lay it out there and, you know, because some people write and they think they have to pile, pile it on, but with, with your, your economy of words is beautiful. And, and then, and then every once in a while you just, <laughs> completely just bring in a little phrase or something and uh you just I, I just love your voice unique unique voice that you have thank you very much my, my well thank you thank you for being you and um when it, how early on did you start writing as a did you write as a kid i or? had some books from when i was a little tiny i have little tiny books really? when i was a little tiny kid oh. i found them the other day i was cleaning out my closet oh. one's called the little tiny book one's the messy book <laughs> All sorts of little books that you fold out. And, oh, you know. that's great. And your sense of humor, where did you get that from? I guess it's a combination of my mother and father. Is it They're really? Both very funny in their own ways. My mother <laughs> is unintentionally funny. <laughs> yeah, clearly from yeah. the stories in your book. <laughs> uh, and, and my dad is in, intentionally. Oh, nice. It's a, it's a combo of both, which yeah. makes sense. Yes. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. That'd be weird if I had your neighbor's sense of humor. <laughs> Well, your mother would have some explaining to do. 
She would. <laughs> so what's next for you? You're working on TV. Are you work? Are you writing more essays? Do you have a new direction you're going with your spoken word um, stuff? Or? I, I continue writing for mm-hmm. fun, mm-hmm. primarily. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what happens just in terms of uh, personal essays. Uh, I, I have a, a writing gig right now that right. I'm focusing on. Yeah. And uh, that's keeping me pretty pretty busy. I bet. I bet. And uh, and how did you meet your wife? The story that I just read about the blind girl, uh-huh. uh, I, I told that story at the show called The Moth. And after that show, she came up to me. She was in the audience. She's not a performer. She was there to enjoy the show. She came with a friend of hers. And she told me that she enjoyed my story and we got married. <laughs> I'm <laughs> like leaving ten, a lot ten out. Ten minutes I'm, later? No, or? <laughs> I'm leaving quite a bit out. But, and and doing The Moth, if you're not familiar with The Moth, listeners, it's um, it's started in New York and now it's an NPR show. But the thing about The Moth is you have five minutes mm-hmm. about and you go up there, you, you, it's, you have to basically speak the story. Uh, so you, and you can't read it. And then they, then they judge you like numbers like go figure up. Figure skating. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's figure skating judging going Which can on. It's going to be really weird because sometimes people tell incredibly <sighs> heavy stories. I usually tell more lighthearted, mm. hopefully funnier stories. But mm-hmm. sometimes people get up there and talk about I was walking in the park and then somebody stabbed me in the back and mm. I almost died. And then judges <laughs> 8.7 on your stabbing. <laughs> Wow, it is. And what's that been like for you? Like when you first did the moth, the very first time, was it difficult for you to do it off book, or did you have a shortened version? Did you practice? Because I haven't gone yet. I haven't even attempted yet. Uh, I, I did. I didn't. You don't know if you're going to get picked, right? That's the other thing too. You put your name in a hat. So I didn't. I knew that I was. I didn't know if I was going to get picked or not. So I didn't work on something because that would be terrible to you know, spend three days. <laughs> Spend not, your three day weekend. Like, I think Dylan Brody. Every time he's gone, he's worked on something, and I don't mm. think he's ever been picked. <laughs> Poor Dylan. I know it's fucked. Uh, well, I got picked the first time I went. Of course you did, Carlos. <laughs> of course you did. And uh, so I just I treated it. There, there's a lot of people. It's very popular as it mm-hmm. should be. It's it's great. Yeah. Uh, but so I, I got picked, and I went up, and I I I spoke as if I was just talking to one person at dinner. Nice. And I just recalled the events as they happened. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that's generally what I do when I when I tell as opposed to read. Right, right, right. I just yeah. pretend. I just think, okay, you're at dinner with your good friend. Right, here's this, here's your dinner party story. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. and then, then it doesn't matter if you mess up. I mean, when you're talking at dinner with your friend, you yeah. go off on a tangent, you'll say this, that, and the other, or, yeah. or you'll say the wrong word or it doesn't matter. They don't care when you're at dinner. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, did you mean to say that? Is, <laughs> well, is that you, how you meant to say you, it? You left out the part where yeah. they don't care. <laughs> they don't. So that's how I treat it when I'm uh, not only at the moth, whatever show. Right. So that uh, gives you real freedom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's nice. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You're just talking to f- your friend. Yeah. So who cares? Yeah. I think I need to go to the moth and do this as an exercise. Hope to get picked and just it's great. Yeah. I mean, I, if you don't take it seriously. Right. If you don't care, yeah. you know, what the scores, it, right. they pick uh, judges out of the audience. Right, right. Yes. And I've, so. uh, I've heard, I've, you know, some friends of mine who are great storytellers, you know, like, I missed by 0. 0.2 points, you know, I'm like, oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> what do you get, like a bag of M&Ms if you win? No, tonight? you get glory. Oh, you get glory. You get glory. The glory of the highest score. Yeah. 
Oh, okay. No, All it, right. doesn't, yeah. it doesn't matter. I, I, yeah, I've kind of made it a thing in my head, so I need to unmake it a thing. You need and to unmake it. I do. I do. I need to unmake it and go and just fuck it and put my name in the hat and tell a story. Call called, have fun. Yeah. And then sit down. Yeah. Yeah, that's the part of me that my perfectionist comes in. That's one of the voices in my head. She's not a very nice voice. <laughs> no, you need to banish that I, voice. I do. I do. I've And, you know, doing my, my solo show, I've it's banished, banishing the perfectionist voice because every night it's different. And I always drop something and I always forget this and it's always something somewhere. It's like a... Well, you're amongst friends. Yes. Yes. So... True. Doesn't matter. Yes, this is true. And you know what? It's just storytelling. And even if they don't like you, it doesn't matter. <laughs> exactly. Who cares? <laughs> I know. I know. See, Which happens. Yeah, of course. I, I've I've faced hostile crowds. <laughs> Anybody who's been on stage uh, long enough eventually is going to get there. Yeah, right? that, that's kind of my fear so far because I haven't really had that experience. I've had kind of you know indifferent. You crowd. will. I know. No, I'm I scared. <laughs> No, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I know. I have to make it not matter. But I think being a kid growing up backstage and watching the whole thing and seeing the love towards my dad and then seeing a hostility towards him also at times, but he could really handle himself. He could handle a heckler, my dad. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> I wish I could learn how to do that. I have to listen to his stuff. I have to listen to his stuff someday. I, I've listened to his, his, <laughs> his heckling. Yeah. yeah. Something about a car fire. Yeah. 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 I've listened to that many times. <laughs> Yeah, he tells people he hopes they get cancer, you know, all sorts he of dies things. in a car fire. Yeah, he dies in a car fire. Yeah, that's my dad. Big heart, big compassionate heart, my dad. <laughs> they shouldn't have been talking. No, it's true. It's those are the rules. They have to know the rules. Um someone had told me that um female hecklers are scarier for them than male hecklers. Because a male heckler, it feels like it's kind of like a like a fist fight situation. Like it could get to fisticuffs and then it would be fine because that's what you do. But with a female heckler, you can't get to that point. And so in some ways she has the power to really fuck with you. And if you really bring it down on her, then you've got, you know, there's like yeah. this whole other psychology yeah. involved with that, which is fascinating. I wonder if I'd have to talk to comedian about that, about having a female heckler. I wonder if it'd be interesting. I had a one time a female heckler who was a heckler because she was overly supportive. <laughs> Was it your mother? So, no, it was not my mother. <laughs> and she just wouldn't stop talking about, that's, you're right about, that's so great. Oh, my God, you're so funny. And I would just thank her. She would and just thank you and I, move on. I appreciate that and try to get through it. Well, at least she was being there for you. She yeah. was in your corner. Yeah. I was in a casino once in Calusa, California, which I'd never even heard of. I don't of. even know where that is. I have That's no idea. It's like in the northeast corner of California. Wow. I didn't know it existed, and it was a casino full of 800 people. Yes. And two women got into a fist fight during my performance. Wow. And I was so rattled already because I was doing so horribly. <laughs> That's how bad I was that these two women had time enough to get distracted and punch each other in the face. <laughs> I was terrible. That was my, I thought I had bombed before. <laughs> that, was, that was my first. Was your real was like, love. Oh, I started uh, sweating, <laughs> oh, like drowning in sweat. Oh my God. I've learned what flop sweat. But see, then you survive it. And then it's like. Yeah. And then I woke up in the morning. And I was like, mm, oh, look, I'm, here. I'm still here. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good go on. Failure is a good thing. It really is. Not when like you're in an airplane and the engines fail. That's not a good thing. But general failure is a good right. thing. <laughs> 
All right, we're done here. Thank you, Carlos. Okay, thank you. Everyone, go to the internets and you can find Carlos's book basically on any internets bookstore site. Remember, it's called God. Please let it be herpes. Uh, funny, fantastic stuff. Great. Uh, is there an audio version? You need to do an audio version. Yeah, that's still. Let's tell Penguin about that. Okay. Okay. There isn't one yet. Penguin. Um, everyone, uh, thank you for being here today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for subscribing on the iTunes and the Stitcher and all that other kind of stuff. Uh, like I said, I'll be in Chicago next week. Please come out and see me for my birthday. Uh, no shows the rest of June because I'm going all over the place, as you know, and I apologize. Shit will get happening again in July. I swear it will. Um, but you can also find me on Sirius XM, my other show, the Kelly Carlin show. I will have, uh, Dana Gould as my July guest and we're going to be recording him next week. And if you love this show and love what I do and want to support our work here, please go to my website, kellycarlin.com. Go to the tab that's Waking for the American Dream and push the PayPal button and send us some money. We do appreciate it. We don't buy a Manalo Blahnik uh, shoes with it. Uh, well, not yet, at least. I mean, you know, you got to work up to that. Uh, maybe some Skechers to start, something like that. I couldn't even walk in Manalo Blahniks. Uh, of course, find me on Twitter. I'm Kelly underscore Carlin. And find my like page on Facebook, please. My personal page. I will ignore you, but I love you. I do. I love you deeply, madly, truly. And I want to thank Logan, of course, as always, and the crew at Smodcast and Kevin Smith for being Kevin and owning and running and thinking of the Smodcast. And Logan, what are we going to go out on today? This is Charlie Wolf Netflix. Charlie Wolf Netflix. Everyone have a great June. Uh, and remember, God bless America. I was Michael J. Fox And back to the future parts One through three Sometimes I wish I was Michael J. Fox Maybe that's who I'm supposed to be I'd erase all the mistakes I've made Join the Beatles Tell you how I feel And maybe stop the Nazis Sometimes I wish I was Christian Bale The leading role of the Dark Knight Sometimes I wish I was Christian Bale Maybe then I would learn to fight For all the things I care about Drive a Lamborghini down the street And maybe save the day I was Adam Sandler in that movie called Click that nobody liked. Sometimes I wish I was Adam Sandler. Maybe then it would be alright for me to stop and think a while. Skip through finals, pause and then rewind. And maybe make some money. Sometimes I wish I was Jesus Christ, feeding the poor, helping the needy. Sometimes I wish I was Jesus Christ Maybe then you'd listen to me Walk on water, heal the blind Feed 5,000 using only fish 
and maybe spread some gospel more than what I This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio.